0: G'day folks and welcome, I'm Chris Faber And I'm TJ Stedman, And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast Coming to you from sunny Western Australia G'day folks and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast The show that tackles your questions about the Biblical giants We had our introductory episode for this season last week Tim So that means it's time to launch Genesis chapter 6, right? nope what? But a whole audience is desperate to get stuck into stories about fallen angels, giants, all that kind of stuff, and I am too. If I'm honest, so what are we doing if we're not doing all that?
1: We're going to school.
0: Okay, but I've already been to school, and I was kind of hoping that part of my life was behind me. I can't afford any more student loans.
1: Yeah, fair enough. I hated school too, but I'm not saying we should go to school. I just want to tag along so we have a look at a day in the life of a Judean scribe, in particular a scribe who found himself taken captive by the Babylonians and forced to learn how to read and write in cuneiform script.
0: But why would we want to do that? How's that going to help us read our Bibles better?
1: Well, what it's going to do for us is give us a bit of an idea of the kind of literature that the people of Judah were exposed to, which is going to tell us something about their influences in the stuff they write, which ends up in the Bible, especially as that comes to bear on our understanding of the primeval history. We've already been talking about this through the whole course of the podcast so far, but in particular, what I want to talk about today is the kind of stuff we can actually prove was part of the education of Judean scribes in the exilic period. Because it's all well and good to observe parallels and correspondences to Mesopotamian literature, but that doth butter no parsnips with some Bible-believing Christians who insist that God doesn't work that way. So, we're just going to show you. Before we do, though... I want to recommend that listeners cast their minds back to the very first season of the podcast and episode number 11, which was the one where we talked about a biblical definition of creation. In the Q&A section of that episode, we talked about the possibility that Moses may have learned cuneiform script. And although I still think it's quite unlikely that it was actually Moses writing Genesis 10, I just bring it up because this isn't the first time that we've talked about the influence of cuneiform script on the biblical text. You might want to go back to that episode and check it out to refresh your memory.
0: Yeah, I think I remember that episode. That was the one where we talked about the cities that uh, Nimrod built and how some translators changed the name of one the cities because it wasn't a city they'd heard of before, but then we found out that we had heard of the city before, but it had a different name. And understanding how that would have been translated from cuneiform script helped us to understand how the uh, cuneiform confusion came about.
1: Yeah, that's right. For those who aren't familiar, cuneiform script was first used from around 3500 BC and remained in use until a couple of centuries after the time of Christ. It was the first and the most enduring form of writing. It was used all over Mesopotamia, and there were a few different languages that used the same writing style. So this is what the Babylonians were using during the time of Nebuchadnezzar II in the Exelic period. You've probably seen pictures of cuneiform script before. It just looks like little patterns of wedge-shaped marks impressed in clay tablets. Cuneiform script was used to support different languages, as I mentioned, but what they had in common was that the writing, after the earliest initial stages, which used logograms or sort of like crude pictures, actually expressed syllables rather than letters of an alphabet. So each symbol represented a sound rather than a letter. This made early translation efforts quite difficult, and the task of the scribe in translating cuneiform script into an alphabetic script was quite challenging, even more so when your written language does not use vowels. Judean scribes who were taken into exile were initially not worried about translating out of cuneiform so much as they were tasked with learning it, although that would change later. And we know they were learning it because the Bible tells us. This is an extract from Daniel chapter 1 which tells us exactly how it came to be that Judean exiles learned to read Cuneiform in Babylon. So this is Daniel 1 verses 1 to 5. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Now we have another reading of Scripture, this time from Second Kings, which is important because it corroborates the historicity of Daniel's account, and it names particular people who were there. This is Second Kings twenty four, verses ten to seventeen. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it, and Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiachin prisoner. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and cut up the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers and fighting men and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000, only the poorest people of the land were left. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin captive to Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the prominent people of the land. The king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and 1,000 skilled workers and artisans. He made Mattaniah Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. All right, so that's the end of the reading. You might have noticed there's a difference in the names in these two Bible passages because one has Jehoiakim and the other has Jehoiachin, we'll come back to that later. That's not all the evidence we have of the historicity of this period and the people involved, because we actually have clay tablets of cuneiform dating from the period of the exile, and the names of some of these Judeans are present in the text. So there is solid archaeological evidence that the exile occurred. Not that it was ever really in question, but also that the particular people mentioned in Second Kings and in Daniel were actually there. There are some tablets known simply as the Palace Archive tablets from Babylon in the time of the exile under King Nebuchadnezzar II. One of these lists provisions that were supplied to guests being accommodated by Nebuchadnezzar. I'm using the word guests in uh, air quotes there. The tablet says 30 litres of oil for Jehukin, king of Judah, two and a half litres for the five sons of the king of Judah, four litres for the eight Jehudians, half a litre for each. So we actually have the name of the King of Judah written in stone right there in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar, but that's not the best part. We also have clay tablets, and you can see these at the British Museum, which show examples of writing from the classrooms of the royal court. In other words, we know what was in the school curriculum for the Judean scribes getting an education under King Nebuchadnezzar's chief Ashpenaz.
0: That's pretty awesome. So what sort of stuff were they reading and writing?
1: Firstly, what we know is they were going through all the kind of stuff you would expect for teaching people how to read and write in a new language. And we have examples of clay tablets from the period which show translation from Akkadian into Aramaic, going from a syllabic script into an alphabetic script. So that's the more mundane side of learning the language and literature of the Babylonians as described in Daniel chapter 1. So a considerable part of the average day for Jewish scribes in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar was learning how to read and write from one language to another in cuneiform script. But the interesting part for our purposes is that they were doing this by learning all kinds of classical Mesopotamian literature. Now, we already knew this from our studies so far through the primeval history, and again that comes out in the text of Daniel 1. But we actually have hard evidence that among the things being taught to Judean scribes were the Sumerian king list, surprise, surprise, the legend of Sargon, which is the story about how King Sargon was mysteriously born and left floating in a basket on the river before his rise to fame, just like Moses. And, most importantly for our subject matter right now, they were also learning both to read and to write portions, at least, of the Epic of Gilgamesh. And I would say that a glance through the primeval history at some of the narratives employed in this compilation betrays evidence of a good deal more influence from other classical Mesopotamian works that we're yet to find hard evidence for. The literary evidence is plain enough to see if you know what to look for. It'd be nice to have it all set in stone, though. Or clay, as the case may be. Examples of that would include things like The Myth of Sheep and Grain, which I mentioned at the beginning of last season, the Atrahasis epic... Enuma Elish, Enmukar and the Lord of Arata, Enmukar and Adapa, the Bit tablets, the Kuthian legend, the cursing of Agat, Adapa and the South Wind, which you talked about last week, and more.
0: And these are all Mesopotamian stories that you can find connections with in Genesis.
1: Yeah, that's right. And not only limited to Genesis either. I mentioned the Sumerian king list just now, and we talked at the beginning of last season about the theory presented by Dr. John Walton, and later repeated and elaborated on by answers in Genesis, that the Sumerian king list and the narrative of Genesis 5 must have come from some shared original source. And of course, the biblical authors got the numbers correct, and the Babylonians inflated them artificially, and it's an interesting theory. But as I said back at the start of season five, it is a theory and a tough one to defend because without manuscript evidence to prove that the connection existed in that manner, it remains just a theory. Possible, but highly improbable. Well, that theory gets shot down when we realize that the Jews were learning cuneiform script and Babylonian literature according to the text of scripture, and we were just reading Daniel 1. So how are we supposed to argue that the Jewish scribes knew these stories better than their teachers? How are we supposed to know that They corrected the historical narrative by adjusting the Sumerian king list down to decimal calculation rather than sexagesimal. The theory goes that the Jewish scribes were the sole arbiters of truth because that's the way that we think about our Bible. That means that they must have got it right where the Babylonians had it wrong. If it hadn't been for Jewish scribes, we would never know the historical truth about the Sumerian king list. You know, if it wasn't for the fact that the Jewish scribes were railing against the tyranny and idolatry of kingship... If it wasn't for the repeated stress on the mortality of their human leaders, if it wasn't for the fact that this genealogy forms part of a chronology that points to the temple rather than the throne of Solomon, I might buy that theory. But if it was not for those things, then Genesis 5, having been reduced to nothing more than a historical record, might as well read something like this. After the kingship descended from heaven, the kingship was in Eridu. In Eridu, Alulim became king. He ruled for 50 years. al ruled for 70 years. Two kings, they ruled for 120 years. Then Eridu fell and the kingship was taken, and so on and so forth. Then the flood swept over. Uh, what would be the point of that? So what I'm getting at here is that everything the biblical scribes have written was done with intent to teach us. And not simply the recording of events for the sake of historicity nor was it the copying of Babylonian stories for the purpose of contriving a Jewish prehistory. That's the disregard of the genre and the messaging and the chronology and all those things that the scribes have worked to present.
0: They're very intentional about the choice of stories used to construct this great prequel to the story of Israel that is a primeval history.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to go back over the Mesopotamian source material that informs our understanding of Genesis 1 through 5, because we've already spent five seasons on that. What's really going to interest us as we move forward is in particular the Apkalu traditions that lay behind the first portion of Genesis 6, in particular verses 1 through 4.
0: That's the bit that connects to the sons of God and the Nephilim. So how does that connection work exactly?
1: Well, that's what we're going to find out. I don't normally do this, but in the interest of saving a lot of time, I'm just going to read you an extended excerpt from chapter 12 of my book, Answers to Giant Questions. How Understanding the Biblical Nephilim Will Enlarge Your Faith. You can get this on Amazon. Here's the quote. The book has all the footnotes and references included, but for the sake of the listening audience, I'm just going to read the main text. Okay, here's the quote. The ancient Mesopotamians, like many others, made images or representations of their gods. Some of these man-made idols have been discovered in recent times, and one of the more profound discoveries was that of the Matzare, or Watchers. The ancient Mesopotamians would craft various figurines of the pre-flood gods, the Apkalu, along with various hybrid monsters, all of which find place in the Babylonian creation myths. These idols were then buried in the foundations and aligned along the inside walls of homes and other buildings, with each one positioned and oriented in such a way as to allegedly provide guardianship against various evils such as diseases or disasters. Thus the Apkalu figurines were referred to as Watchers. These idols represented the ancient spirits that were believed to have brought protection, knowledge, and culture to ancient people. These Apkalu were believed to be initially benevolent towards humanity before becoming corrupt and being associated with evil. However, once defeated by a superior deity, they were believed to be subdued, becoming once more a force for good from the Babylonian point of view. They were then entrusted with the safekeeping of the family dwelling, the royal house, or even the city gates, as the case may be. Basically, the ancients figured they could tame the gods. The biblical parallel to the Apkalu before the flood would be the fallen sons of God from Genesis 6. Their children, the biblical Nephilim, were also called Apkalu but were considered only partly divine and they were also part human. Thus the Nephilim were thought of as lesser Apkalu. The Mesopotamian material also indicates that there were at least one and possibly four of the Apkalu demigods present on the earth in the time after the flood as we saw already in our study of Enmerkar, the man the Bible calls Nimrod. So there is evidence to suggest that the Mesopotamians believed that these spirit beings remained active on the earth after the deluge. But what is absent from the ancient Apkalu traditions is the notion that other beings of the same status as the original Apkalu were both widespread and active on the earth after the flood. The biblical record, however, paints a different picture. With the Apkalu equivalent, the fallen sons of God, given dominion over the nations and active in the affairs of men. The Babylonian silence on these other apkalu can be attributed to an unwillingness to concede similar status for the gods of the surrounding nations. The pride of Babylon revolved around the premise that they alone had access to the primeval wisdom. These sons of God may be identified as the self-same ones that participated in the Genesis 6 rebellion, given the connections between Genesis 6 and 11 while the New Testament authors and that of First Enoch described their status as chained under darkness. It would be a mistake to take this figurative language as literal. The abyss is no more a physical place than the earth is flat. It's a cosmological understanding, not a scientific one. The sons of God were restrained in terms of a loss of freedom or power, but there is no evidence of banishment to some other place. They still operate within the geography that they were assigned to. The fact that the conceptual language of sons of God appears in Genesis 6 and Deuteronomy 32 is not coincidental. These powers still roam the earth even today, see Job chapters 1 and 2, and their power is limited but still very real. While they do not reside in heaven, they can appear before God at his command. Like the Mesopotamian characters, these sons of God in the biblical record continued to influence the destinies of humankind, in particular through human rulers such as those found in the Sumerian king list, including Enmerkar, that's Nimrod. Consider also Nebuchadnezzar II, who features prominently in the Book of Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar refers to these entities in Daniel as Watchers, the same terminology or function as we find applied to the spirits behind the Idols. We can narrow the apparent gap between the Mesopotamian abkalu and the Watchers by considering that both groups fall within a common class of beings known in Mesopotamian mythology, that of the Anunnaki and Ijiju. Although the Apkalu appear to be differentiated from the Anunnaki and Ijiju, it would seem that the difference is in the roles the groups play. While the Anunnaki and the Ijiju serve as ministers to the gods, the Apkalu direct their ministry toward mankind as benefactors of wisdom and power. However, they all are considered to be siblings as sons of the high god, The name of the god varies depending on which of the pantheon was considered to be the greatest at the time. The Anunnaki and Ijiju are territorial beings, serving the gods within their respective allotted domains. While the Ijiju and Anunnaki are considered to be of equivalent status, only the Anunnaki are associated with dominion in the underworld, whereas the Ijiju are not. Both groups, however, are mentioned in heavenly contexts, which would indicate that the Anunnaki have greater access. The picture painted in ancient cosmology, then, is one of a hierarchy of function. The biblical sons of God are correlated to the Anunnaki or Ijiju. What separates the Anunnaki from the Ijiju appears to be their range of access within the three tiers of the cosmos, heaven, earth, and underworld. Likewise biblically we find the fallen sons of God present and active in every plane, see Job 1 and Jude 6 whereas the ones that are loyal to Yahweh maintain their proper place and are not attested in the underworld. All are alike in that they do not seek their own glory, but the angels in heaven glorify God alone in contrast to the rebel angels who distract from his glorification. There is no evidence whatsoever that there existed any cult or system of worship devoted to the Anunnaki and Ejitu, in Mesopotamia at least. The story changes once the Greeks get their hands on these ideas. They were always recognized by as subservient to greater gods. The sons of God are given particular status as overseers of regions, typically by means of influence through an appointed human ruler, being the political king and or priestly representative. These are the entities that the Mesopotamians regarded as the Abkalu sages. Incidentally, the connection to the giants is even seen in the name. Apkalu comes from Sumerian ab, which means water, gal, literally big, and lu, man. Thus, Apkalu means big man from before or from out of the water. It's only when we get into the Canaanite material that we find any kind of continuity between the Mesopotamian Apkalu traditions and the sort of idolatry that Israel succumbed to in the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy 32 verse 17, They sacrificed unto devils, not to God, to gods whom they knew not. To new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. And Psalm 106, verse 37 and 38. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils, and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and of their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. The term found in the texts above that we translate devils appears only in these two places in the Bible, and on both occasions it is used in a similar context. The Hebrew word used is shadim. We see in Psalm 106 the connection between these devils and idol worship found in Canaan, land of the Amorites. Historically, the Ejiju gods may have been known to the Amorites, the Matu people, even before they were adopted into Babylonian religion alongside the Anunnaki. Psalm 106 as we saw above, is one of several instances of reference to human sacrifice conducted in Canaanite religion and sometimes performed by apostate Israelites. The deity for which these sacrifices were performed was usually Molech or some derivative of a similar term. The Semitic uh, MLK can be construed variously. This Molech was considered a king of the underworld, because MLK is an epithet of kingship which could be used of human kings, lesser gods, and even Yahweh himself, without any apparent contradiction. This is a relatively late development in ancient Canaanite religion, and as such, by this time the Babylonian concept of the Anunnaki as the demigods of the underworld had come to exist alongside the earlier, possibly Canaanite, Jew. Hence the Canaanite conception of sons of the high god having dominion in the underworld. The Canaanite god Molech is assigned the same status as one of the biblical sons of God. He's essentially a national or territorial deity, a king, over the Canaanites. Similarly, the Ammonites worshipped a deity with a related epithet, Milcom. These and many others are the gods that Israel had not previously known. They are the new gods that came newly up. This makes sense when we consider that the Hebrew shadim, translated devils, is cognate to Akkadian Shedu, which means literally territorial spirit. When we consider the prophet Daniel's theme of territorial dominion of certain divine beings, it tells us that the shadim were specifically connected to the spiritual geography of the land in which they were found. Here's Daniel 10, verses 13 and 20. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Then he said, You know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. They specifically target people of influence over geographical territories. These are territorial spirits of God's divine council, not mere supernatural pests. This was evidenced in our earlier examination of Daniel 4 and the account of the watchers who decreed the fate of King Nebuchadnezzar. The Sumerian king list is solid evidence of this outside of Scripture. In this scenario, terms such as Watchers, Apkalu, Sons of God, Anunnaki, Ijiju, and Evil Spirits from God are practically equivalent to shadim or Devils, as used in Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 106. Okay, so that's the end of the quote. Some of you will be familiar with that terminology, and for others, it might be a bit of a new thing, so you might want to just take your time to absorb that information because I've essentially distilled an awful lot of scholarship on the topic into a couple of pages of text there. That's a fair example of the kind of stuff that I get into in my book, so if you found that interesting and helpful, then definitely get yourself a copy.
0: Absolutely. And for our listeners who have been following this podcast since the beginning, they all have seen various touch points where we connected with this Mesopotamian understanding of the pre-flood culture heroes who brought the gifts of civilization to mankind. I was especially prominent as we went through season four of the podcast, and we
1: looked at some of that last week as well. Yeah, that's right. With that in mind, uh, what I'd like to do now is read you one of these Mesopotamian stories. I mentioned it a moment ago, and I did say that we talked about it briefly at the beginning of season five, but instead of just giving you a little bit of a summary and a brief quotation... I thought we'd just read The Myth of Sheep and Grain, the whole thing. You can find this yourself online for free. Just visit the Electronic Text Corpus of Sumerian Literature at Oxford University. I'm not even going to try and read you the web address. It's just confusing. But uh, you can search for that online, find it easily enough. This is the story that I said you could see in parallel with Cain and Abel. See if you can pick up the connections as we get about halfway through this. But The first half is the bit where we get introduced to the Anunnaki. Now here's the story. Again, this is the debate between sheep and grain. When upon the hill of heaven and earth, An, that is the most high god in the Mesopotamian pantheon, spawned the Anuna gods, since he neither spawned nor created grain with them, and since in the land he neither fashioned the yarn of Utu, that's the goddess of weaving, nor pegged out the loom for Utu, with no sheep appearing, there were no numerous lambs. And with no goats, there were no numerous kids. The sheep did not give birth to her twin lambs, and the goat did not give birth to her triplet kids. The Anuna, the great gods, did not even know the names, Kuzu, that is grain, or sheep. There was no grain of 30 days. There was no grain of 40 days. There was no grain of 50 days. There was no small grain, grain from the mountains, or grain from the holy habitations. There was no cloth to wear. Utu had not been born. No royal turban was worn. Lord Nigerese, the precious lord, had not been born. Kakan, the god of wild animals, had not gone out into the barren lands. The people of those days did not know about eating bread. They did not know about wearing clothes. They went about with naked limbs in the land. Like sheep, they ate grass with their mouths and drank water from the ditches. Yeah, well, did you see the parallels there with Genesis 2 and the idea that we're talking about a time before there was agriculture and civilization? I
0: did notice that. It has that familiar style, Genesis 2, as, you know, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground.
1: Yeah, it's a very similar kind of language, isn't it? Let's keep going. At that time, at the place of the gods' formation in their own home on the Holy Mound, they created sheep and grain Having gathered them in the divine banqueting chamber, the Anuna gods of the Holy Mound partook of the bounty of sheep and grain, but were not sated. The Anuna gods of the Holy Mound partook of the sweet milk of their holy sheepfold, but were not sated. For their own well-being in the holy sheepfold, they gave them to mankind as sustenance. So what we're seeing here is that the gifts of sheep and grain have been given to mankind so that mankind can make their use widespread in order to be able to satisfy the appetites of the gods because they're not getting enough food by themselves.
0: Yeah, and that's because in the ancient world, the gods relied on mankind to feed them, right?
1: Yeah, that's it. They call it the great symbiosis. People feed the gods and the gods bless the people. One can't live without the other. Let's get back to the reading. At that time, Enki spoke to Enlil. Father Enlil, now sheep and grain have been created on the holy mound. Let us send them down from the holy mound. Enki and Enlil, having spoken their holy word, sent sheep and grain down from the holy mound. Sheep being fenced in by her sheepfold, they gave her grass and herbs generously. For grain they made her field, and gave her the plough, yoke, and team. Sheep standing in her sheepfold was a shepherd of the sheepfolds, brimming with charm. Grain standing in her furrow was a beautiful girl radiating charm. Lifting her raised head up from the field, she was suffused with the bounty of heaven. Sheep and grain had a radiant appearance. They brought wealth to the assembly. They brought sustenance to the land. They fulfilled the ordinances of the gods. They filled the storerooms of the land with stock. The barns of the land were heavy with them. When they entered the homes of the poor who crouch in the dust, they brought wealth. Both of them, wherever they directed their steps, added to the riches of the household with their weight. Where they stood, they were satisfying. Where they settled, they were seemly. They gladdened the heart of Arn and the heart of Enlil. So here sheep and grain are depicted as two sisters and their representative of the functions of priesthood and kingship respectively. This text describes the beneficial effect that they have on humankind by bringing prosperity to the land. But it's not long before a rivalry begins. And it's time to see which one is really the greatest of the gifts of the gods to mankind. Is this the Cain and Abel bit? Yeah, yeah, this is it now. I'll keep reading. They drank sweet wine. They enjoyed sweet beer. When they had drunk sweet wine and enjoyed sweet beer, they started a quarrel concerning the arable fields. They began a debate in the dining hall, grain called out to sheep, sister. I am your better. I take precedence over you. I am the glory of the lights of the land. I grant my power to the Sajur that's the, a member of the cultic personnel of Inanna. He fills the palace with awe, and people spread his fame to the borders of the land. I am the gift of the Anuna gods. I am central to all princes. After I have conferred my power on the warrior, when he goes to war, he knows no fear. He knows no faltering. I make him leave as if to the playing field. I foster neighborliness and friendliness. I sort out quarrels, started between neighbors. When I come upon a captive youth and give him his destiny, he forgets his despondent heart, and I release his fetters and shackles. I am Xenakuzu, grain. I am Enlil's daughter. In sheep shacks and milking pens, scattered on the high plain, what can you put against me? Answer me what you can reply. So that's Grain, who represents kingship, challenging Sheep, who represents priesthood, for superiority. So now Sheep is going to respond. Thereupon Sheep answered Grain, My sister, whatever are you saying? Arn, king of the gods, made me descend from the holy place, my most precious place. All the yarns of Utu, the splendour of kingship, belong to me. Kakan, king of the mountain, embosses the king's emblems and puts his implements in order. He twists a giant rope against the great peaks of the rebel land. He carries the sling, the quiver, and the longbows. The watch over the elite troops is mine. Sustenance of the workers in the field is mine. The water skin of cool water and the sandals are mine. Sweet oil, the fragrance of the gods. Mixed oil, pressed oil, aromatic oil, cedar oil, for offerings, are mine. In the gown, my cloth of white wool, the king rejoices on his throne. My body glistens on the flesh of the great gods. After the purification priests, the incantation priests, and the bathed priests have dressed themselves in me for my holy lustration, I walk with them to my holy meal. But your harrow, plowshare, binding, and strap are tools that can be utterly destroyed. What can you put against me? Answer me what you can reply. So Sheep comes back against grain, saying that she's the one who brings all the greatness and glory to the kingship, so she should be superior over grain. Touche. Again, grain addressed sheep. When the beer dough has been carefully prepared in the oven and the mash tended in the oven, Ninkasi, that's the goddess of beer, mixes them for me while your big billy goats and rams are dispatched for my banquets. On their thick legs they are made to stand separate from my produce. Your shepherd on the high plain eyes my produce enviously. When I'm standing in the furrow in the field, my farmer chases away your herdsman with his cudgel. Even when they look out for you, From the open country to the hidden places, your fears are not removed from you. Fanged snakes and bandits, the creatures of the desert, want your life on the high plain. Every night your count is made and your tally stick put into the ground so your herdsmen can tell people how many ewes there are and how many young lambs and how many goats and how many young kids. When gentle winds blow through the city and strong winds scatter, they build a milking pen for you. But when gentle winds blow through the city, and strong winds scatter, I stand up as an equal to Ikur, that is the god of storms. I am grain, I am born for the warrior, I do not give up. The churn, the vat on legs, the adornments of shepherding, make up your properties. What can you put against me? Answer me what you can reply. So this is Grain saying to sheep well, you would be nothing if I didn't protect you. Again, sheep answered grain, you, like holy Anana of heaven, love horses. When a banished enemy, a slave from the mountains, or a labourer with a poor wife and small children comes, bound with his rope of one cubit to the threshing floor, or is taken away from the threshing floor, when his cudgel pounds your face, pounds your mouth as a pestle, your ears, and it's uh, a bit broken up in the, the text here, you are blown about by the south wind and the north wind, The mortar, as if it were pumice, it makes your body into flour. When you fill the trough, the baker's assistant mixes you and throws you on the floor, and the baker's girl flattens you out broadly. You are put into the oven and you are taken out of the oven. When you are put on the table, I am before you. You are behind me. That might be a poo joke. Grain, heed yourself. You too, just like me, are meant to be eaten. At the inspection of your essence, why should it be I who come second? Is the miller not evil? What can you put against me? Answer me what you can reply. This time Sheep says to Grain that everything the kingship produces gets given to the gods, so clearly the priesthood is superior. Then Grain was hurt in her pride and hastened for the verdict. Grain answered Sheep, As for you, Ikur is your master, Kakan your herdsman, and the dry land your bed. Like fire beaten down in houses and in fields, like small flying birds chased from the door of a house, you are turned into the lame and weak of the land. Should I really bow my neck before you? You are distributed into various measuring containers. When your innards are taken away by the people in the marketplace, and when your neck is wrapped with your very own loincloth, one man says to another, Fill the measuring container with grain for my you. So, grain gets the last word by saying that religion is for the poor and pious masses who eventually will throw it out when they need to feed themselves. That's when they turn to grain as a priority.
0: So grain enables sheep because the kingship funds the priesthood, is that about right?
1: Yeah, now we get to the bit where the gods have their say on this debate. Then Enki spoke to Enlil. Father Enlil, sheep and grain should be sisters. They should stand together. Of their threefold metal, something missing in the text, shall not cease. But of the two, grain shall be the greater. Let sheep fall on her knees before grain. Let her kiss the feet of grain. From sunrise till sunset, may the name of grain be praised. People should submit to the yoke of grain. Whoever has silver, whoever has jewels, whoever has cattle, whoever has sheep, shall take a seat at the gate of whoever has grain and pass his time there. Dispute spoken between sheep and grain. Sheep is left behind and grain comes forward. Praise be to Father Enki. That's the end of the story. And we talked before about how you can see Cain and Abel in these two characters. Cain is the one who represents kingship, and Abel is the one who represents the priesthood. And I've already talked at some length about the interesting number of parallels there between this story and the Cain and Abel story. For those who came in late, that was the first episode of season five.
0: So why did you read that whole story?
1: Well, it's because I wanted you to see the extent to which the Bible's primeval history depends on certain texts from ancient Mesopotamia in terms of literary influence. Obviously, the messaging is different, and I think I've explained that enough now to not have to defend it. But it was in that first part of the story where the Anunnaki gave these gifts to humanity. That's the important part for our purposes here in Genesis, because what the biblical authors are going to do is turn around and say that all the stuff that made Babylon so great was really a bad thing. And they're going to point to the violence and depravity of mankind as evidence of that. So pay attention to that idea as we read now the first five verses of Genesis chapter 6. We're finally going to read some Bible. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Obviously, the connection with the Mesopotamian material only goes as far as those first four verses, but it's verse 5 that offers the polemic, and it's important that we maintain the biblical context by keeping that connection, because it reminds us of the author's intent.
0: So it's all the wickedness or the violence that ends up being the reason for the flood?
1: Yeah, that's right. But there's a bit more to it than that. And as I explain in my book, that's where the Nephilim come into the picture. In the Mesopotamian stories, Atrahasis, for example, it's just that people are noisier and annoying and the gods can't stand all the racket, so they decide to kill everyone so they get some peace and quiet. Here's the quote from Atrahasis. And the country became too wide, the people too numerous. The country was as noisy as a bellowing bull. The god grew restless at their racket. Elil had to listen to their noise. He addressed the great gods. The noise of mankind has become too much. I am losing sleep over their racket. (laughs) Do you
0: think there's a connection between the noise in uh, Atrahasis and the violence in Genesis
1: 6? Yeah, definitely. In fact, when you look at the Atrahasis epic, there are two afflictions that get brought on mankind before the flood. The first one is sickness, and the second one is drought. And when we read Genesis 3 and 4, we get the introduction of mortality in the story of Adam and Eve, followed by the days of agriculture coming to an end in the story of Cain and Abel. We've talked about those things before, but I didn't mention that you'd be able to see them in the Atrahasis epic.
0: Mind blown. I did not see that coming.
1: Yeah, but getting back to Genesis 6 and the motivation for bringing the flood, it sounds very much like the Mesopotamian audience didn't think of violence as a bad thing. Whereas disturbing somebody's sleep seemed a more reasonable warrant for genocide. I must admit I'm not the most sociable person first thing in the morning. But the biblical text goes even further because it talks about the inner motivations of people as being problematic as well. So it's not just about noise or activity. In fact, you could argue using the Cain and Abel story and its Mesopotamian counterpart, which we were just reading, that the biblical author is suggesting that Israel would have been better off without the kingship altogether. By the way, I mentioned earlier the difference between the names of the king of Judah. Not a big deal because it actually refers to two separate kings in quick succession during that time period. This is made clear when we read Second Kings 24 verses 1 to 6. Here it is. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done. And also for the innocent blood that he had shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. And I mention that passage because of the mention of the shedding of innocent blood in verse 4 which was another connection back to the Genesis 4 story of Cain and Abel, and you can see there how it ties into the author's condemnation of tyrannical kingship.
0: Yeah, maybe you mentioned that back in season 4.
1: Yeah, certainly if you view kingship as something to be desired on the basis of the way that other nations operate, and that is the prevailing slant of the narrative in the books of Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, it doesn't look good to suggest that it had its origins with the sons of God rather than the Most High himself. So this story has introduced us to the concept of the Anunnaki gods as the custodians of civilization who imparted this wisdom to mankind before the flood. As far as a biblical correlation to this idea, you don't see it in pre-exilic biblical texts. Late biblical authors are definitely reading it back into earlier biblical material though, and expanding on it in the Second Temple period. But when the Jewish authors do this, they're focused on the sons of God as having been given the responsibility to guide mankind in right conduct and true worship, a responsibility which they abandoned in favour of trading the arts of civilization for mortal human indulgences. As an example, I have some quotes from the Book of Jubilees which describe the tradition that Jewish scribes held around the role of the sons of God. In this text, they're referred to as watchers mentioned earlier in that excerpt from my book, how those names connect. But what you're going to see in these quotes is the idea that these divine beings were supposed to teach people. So this is Jubilees chapter 4, verse 15. And in the second week of the 10th Jubilee, Mahalalel took unto him to wife Dinah, the daughter of Barakiel, the daughter of his father's brother. And she bare him a son in the third week, in the sixth year. And he called his name Jared. For in his days the angels of the Lord descended on the earth, those who are named the watchers, that they should instruct the children of men, and that they should do judgment and uprightness on the earth. Uh, Going down to 4 verse 22, And he testified to the watchers who had sinned with the daughters of men, for these had begun to unite themselves so as to be defiled with the daughters of men. And Enoch testified against them all. Uh, also, Jubilees seven verse twenty-one. For owing to these three things came the flood upon the earth, namely, owing to the fornication wherein the watchers, against the law of their ordinances, went a whoring after the daughters of men and took themselves wives of all which they chose, and they made the beginning of uncleanness. It's interesting to note from that passage that the first of three reasons for the flood provided by the author of Jubilees is the commingling of the watchers with human women. And the other reasons, if you continue in the text, are the violence against humanity and the violence against animals. That's not genetic engineering. It's violence. But the point of that passage was that it was against their ordinances. Uh, His Jubilees 8, verse 3. And he found a writing which former generations had carved on the rock. And he read what was thereon, and he transcribed it, and sinned owing to it, for it contained the teaching of the watchers in accordance with which they used to observe the omens of the sun and moon and stars in all the signs of heaven. So that's four quotes from Jubilees which emphasize, either by explicit mention or implication, the responsibility of the watchers to teach people in the way of righteousness. And again, that's a contrast to the Babylonian model in which the Anunnaki teach the arts of civilization. And you've probably seen that reflected in First Enoch, where some of those things are described. This is First Enoch chapter 8. And Azazel taught mankind to make swords and knives and shields and coats of mail, and taught them to see what was behind them, and their works of art bracelets and ornaments, and the use of rouge, and the beautifying of the eyebrows, and the dearest and choicest stones, and all coloring substances, and the metals of the earth. And there was great wickedness and much fornication, and they sinned, and all their ways were corrupt. Amazarach taught all the conjurers and root cutters, Amaros the loosening of conjurations. Barakal the astrologers, Kokabel the signs and Temel taught astrology and Azradel taught the course of the moon. And in the destruction of mankind they cried aloud and their voices reached heaven.
0: So for the author of first Enoch all this teaching was destructive and led to the corruption and ultimately the devastation of
1: the human race. Yeah, that's exactly right, Chris. So when we come back next week, we're going to take a closer look at Genesis 6, 1 to 4 and specific texts that inform our understanding of it.
0: And I am looking forward to that. But right now, time for some Q&A. So let's get some answers to some giant questions.
2: I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible... Just some general feedback you'd like to tell us at the world at large. Here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions.
0: Noah said in the Answers to Giant Questions Facebook discussion group. Chris and TJ, fantastic show and answers, guys, as always. I just have one thought about today's show, Noah the 8th, Season 5, Episode 18. Tim when you were reading the description of the appearance of the newborn Noah how his skin was white like snow and his hair was white like wool I couldn't help but have the mental image of an albino looking child. Yes I agree with you that description was symbolic of its righteousness but could it also have a physical counterpart like a dual meaning. I've often wondered about how all the different races with varied shades of skin color came about from one man and his wife. Maybe I'm way off of this but could genetic albinism have some part to play in the differences we see in ethnic appearances anyways thank you guys for all the hard work that you do to make this show happen love those kind words
1: yeah very nice all right well that's an interesting thought and thanks noah for the question uh i'm happy to see that the point of the text was taken in that noah's radiant appearance in the text of second enoch was intended to communicate the idea that he reflected the glory of God, which ultimately would be manifest in his obedience to the commandment. But we have to be careful that we do not import additional meaning to the text, even if it isn't scripture, because we're still reading a theologically driven text in 2 Enoch, and the author is communicating thoughts about God and his glory and his attributes here, rather than attempting to explain scientifically observed phenomena.
0: Yeah, in other words, the author of Second Enoch isn't making a statement that connects skin colour with righteousness.
1: Yeah, and if we think about the implications of this line of thinking, we can run into some dangerous territory. So according to this text, Noah was white because that's how he appeared to be in the manifestation of God's glory through him. That's, that's not even about his skin colour. If we take that to mean that skin colour has anything to do with the ability to reflect the glory of God, Are we not then saying that white people are more godly than black people? I know it sounds absurd when you say that because, well, it is absurd, but that's where this line of thinking goes. That was the conclusion of Gnosticism in the first century, and its effect is still being felt in our world today. And I just want to make it clear that I don't take this question as being racially motivated, but I just think it's important that we look at these things carefully to avoid drawing conclusions that are unhelpful in that regard. And just touching on the uh, albinism thing, that's a pretty well known and well documented phenomenon. Uh, Albinism is a genetically inherited trait, but the fact is that the distribution of albinism in populations is so sparse that it can't be used to explain the origin of tribes or nations of people that are genetically fair skinned. Albinism is a condition related to the natural production of melanin in the body. Another factor that influences melanin production is environmental conditions and lifestyle factors. And I think it makes far more sense to attribute skin colours in populations to their geography, climate and lifestyle. There are going to be genetic factors in that as well, but all of these things have to be taken together. So I don't think that it does any good to look back at Noah or his sons, as you'll often hear, and people make the same arguments about Cain and Abel back in the day. You just don't get different skin colours in people from these descriptions of events that are theologically motivated in the Holy Scripture, or in the uh, Second Temple period, Jewish writings, we need to realise that these theological texts were not written to be taken as just-so stories about how certain things in the world became the way they are on a scientific level. The Second Enoch was not written to give some kind of an explanation as to how it came to be that white people existed in the world. I think we really need to make sure that we maintain an approach to ancient literature that's faithful to the intent of the author as far as we can tell what that is. So I hope that was helpful. Of course, I'm conscious that this can be a sensitive subject for some people, and I'm quite certain that Noah wasn't coming from an angle of division or discrimination here with this question. So I hope my response hasn't been taken that way. I want to encourage all our listeners to keep those giant questions coming.
0: Yeah, by all means, keep sending in your questions. We love receiving them, Uh, and also your thoughts and feedback to the website, giantanswers.com. And remember, this is Genesis 6 this season, so it's the perfect time to get answers to your giant questions.
1: Yeah, that's it from us this week. We'll catch you next time when we dive deep into the Anunnaki and the sons of God. Stick around.
0: It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant questions we're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on amazon or goodreads to help it become more visible in search results even if you just give it stars that'll help but a full review is certainly really appreciated please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show this podcast comes out every week but you want to make sure you never miss an episode so if you haven't already subscribed do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast.
2: Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Great Forsaken, GreatForsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by TJ Steadman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreesc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.
1: I knew when I started this season and we were going to be getting into Genesis 6 that things were going to start getting difficult, you know. Uh, A bit of testing times maybe a bit of spiritual warfare I don't know but uh yeah things have been challenging lately nothing too uh malicious I don't think uh you know just uh just the test to see how (laughs) how I'll respond how I'll handle it yes trying to be gracious (laughs) I'd offer you a Tim Tam but you can't eat it from there
0: um no but that's okay I've got uh what do I have? I do have Tim Tams here, actually.
1: Young men without any physical defect. Who didn't yawn every five minutes? Yeah.
0: That's the bit that connects to the Sons of God and the neph. That's the bit that connects to the Sons of God and the Nephilim.
1: <laughs> For grain, they made her field and gave the... Let me try that again.
0: Yes, I did notice that, and it has that familiar... Let's try that again.
1: I'm going to take some southern comfort
0: and some lemonade. <laughs> yeah, I did n- <laughs> I did notice that it has that